Welcome back to the Thinking Out Loud podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dave Hallahan. Excited about our episode today. But before we get into that, I want to make sure you're all caught up because we actually posted two episodes last week. My conversation with Rex Harson, where we talked about the new Netflix docuseries, The Family. And speaking of evangelicals who may be looking for a power grab, I also had Jim Jefferson on to talk about President Trump his call with the Ukraine and the current impeachment proceedings that are happening there. So be sure to check out those episodes. Both were great conversations. Appreciate Rex and Jim coming back on. Both are repeat customers here at Thinking Out Loud podcast. Also want to make you aware of something going on in the month of October. Towards the end of the month, you will hear my conversation with Alan Noble, author of Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age which was just an awesome book, so good, that I read the first chapter and I bought like 10 copies. I gave a bunch of them away to people here at my church, but I have one copy left for you guys. So we're gonna be doing another book giveaway. How do you enter? What an excellent question. All you have to do is follow us on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes. Heck, doesn't even have to be five stars. I'd appreciate it if it was, but it doesn't have to be. Just leave us a rating and a review. You can call me mean names if you want, and you'll still be entered. That's how gracious I am. So you're welcome for that. But make sure you leave a rating and review on iTunes, and all of our Patreon subscribers will be entered a second time. So there's an easy way to get two entries for this book giveaway. Again, that's patreon.com slash thinkingoutloudpod. And as long as you're giving $3 a month, then you receive all of the perks, which are episodes a week early, unedited episodes, extra entries into book giveaways. After six months of giving, you'll receive some swag in the form of a t-shirt or a mug. And you get to chat with me about some things that I'm thinking about that don't make it onto the podcast. This week, I posted two articles that I've been thinking about, about They were about giving teenagers smartphones and when to do that, if to do that. And also uh, by an article by Ed Stetzer on our missionary identity that kind of played into a past conversation I had with Brian Saunders about America being a Christian nation and how we as Christians should view our place in America. I thought Ed Stetzer's words were really good. But you can check out those articles and that conversation on patreon.com slash thinkingoutloudpod. But today, I am talking to Dan Kent, author of a book, Confident Humility. And we talk about the book a little bit, but really what he came on to talk to me about was open theism. And early in the conversation, he dispelled some of the notions I had about what open theism is or was. I share the story in the podcast, you're about to hear it, how I heard about open theism for the first time. And he dispels some of those notions, but I would say heading into this conversation with Dan, my thought, the simplest way I could boil it down, and really it wasn't, I couldn't even make it that much more complicated because I didn't know much about it. I still don't know that much about it. Understanding was that open theism was was an understanding of God that says that God either has limited knowledge of the future or purposefully limits his knowledge of the future. And in that way, we kind of have free choice. So as we 
head into this conversation with Dan Kent. Open theism is just, it's a theology that I think is wrestling with a lot of questions that uh, Reformed theology or Calvinism, Arminias, Arminianism, like any theology is wrestling with the same questions, the nature of God, the nature of reality, the nature of our choice and our responsibility to this God. Open theism has some unique approaches to these questions and I think has some satisfying answers as well. I'm still definitely thinking through it and I would encourage you to listen to this episode but then to check out Dan Ken's article 15 reasons why open theism is true. After reading that article uh, I feel like I had some good perspective on this. So this conversation that I have with Dan is very much just an introduction to the topic but I'm sure that you will enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Dan Kent. Dan Kent, welcome to the Thinking Out Loud podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I appreciate your your willingness to come on. Um, you're up in Minnesota. <laughs> yes, right? Minnesota. Yeah. And you're yeah. in Philadelphia, right? Basically, I'm right outside of Philadelphia. Um, yeah, and you're a New Philadelphia Jersey, sports but... fan, according to your Twitter page. That that is correct. Are and, you a Minnesota sports fan? Well, I just you know I, I I shouldn't even be on this podcast since the Eagles kicked us out of the playoffs a couple <laughs> years ago. I'm still bitter about that. I wasn't going to bring it up. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I, I don't think you're the only person in Minnesota who is bitter. That's true. Well, and it's partly because it's bitter cold up here all the time. Yeah, too. yeah. that doesn't help. It's so. like the only option you guys have. That, that's right. Yeah. No, our uh, hearts are warm. Our hearts yeah. are warm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, the, here's, let me say this. You, okay. you said you didn't know if I was into football or not. I'm actually trying to get out of watching uh, football. Yes, yes. And I'm, because it's, I think the NFL, not, okay, now I'm going to sound manic here, but I think the <laughs> NFL, it, it operates very much like a cult and it yeah. ends up taking more and more and more of your time. And, um, and so I've been trying to extract myself from it as much as possible. Uh, but yeah. which just sucks because one, I played football and I loved, I was a quarterback and I loved it. Um, and number two, I am just an incredible fantasy football player and, uh, <laughs> it's hard to, it's, it's like, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Andrew Luck, you know, it's yeah, hard yeah. to leave something that you're really good. <laughs> yeah. And and so that's I'm trying to follow in Andrew Luck's shoes. So, so. are you doing fantasy football this year or how no. have you cut that out? No, this is my third year out of fantasy football. Okay. Gotcha. But now the Vikings are finally good again. Yeah, so yeah. it's like they're trying eh. to pull you back in. I they hear are. you know, I I do have like do um you're probably familiar with the work, even if you haven't watched the new Amazon or I think Hulu series, but on Catch Twenty Two. Oh man, I I, re- I read Catch Twenty Two. I loved it, and okay. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, but- so that series is great, and obviously, uh, like uncovers like the the dark side of war and 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 all of that. And uh, that in this, I actually haven't read the book, but I watched the series on Hulu, which I thought was great. And in one of the scenes, the they're going into what is surely going to be like this very deadly battle, and the the commanding officer says to the soldiers, um, your death will not be in vain. And it struck me that like, how does he know that? Like he has no idea what's going to happen after they die. Like that's right. Maybe it could be in vain, but as a war machine, you need people to believe their deaths won't be in vain because after they die, you're going to need someone else to sign up. And after this war, there's going to be another war and you need people to believe that it's not in vain. 
So I'm getting back to football, believe it or not. Um, (laughs) So like, because I guess, because I like football and my brain just seems to just go, I connected it to football. And uh, as you have, I don't know how closely you've been following the NFL, but uh, I guess it was now two seasons ago when Ryan Shazier of the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, when uh, he was like paralyzed on the field and um, was told he would never walk again. And he, thank God, like he is walking, he's regaining mobility, but at the NFL draft, the following year, they had him walk out um, to make the Pittsburgh Steelers draft pick. And when I heard your death will not be in vain, I saw Ryan Shazier walking out to make the draft pick because the NFL was saying your sacrifice won't be in vain to right. these guys who are sacrificing their bodies and their well-being. So while I do like football and I am still playing fantasy football, I I am wrestling with even the morality of the NFL uh, and the idolatry uh, that it I think it has in the hearts of so many Americans. But yeah. uh, but that was Amen. That was quite the rabbit trail there. Hey, that's a good. That's a good rabbit trail. That's a good rabbit trail for sure. Uh, so, so Dan, you uh, recently wrote a book called "Confident Humility" um, that came out uh, this year, right? Uh, yes, it came out in June. Okay. Um, so, confident humility. There is uh, an obvious. Uh, you're trying to do something there with humility. So, um, as you have have looked at this topic of humility, I, I listen. I haven't read the book yet, but I've I've listened to you kind of talk about this idea. You're you're trying to show that humility isn't just the opposite of pride. So, what have you kind of unpacked yeah. when it comes to humility? Yeah, I think uh, really what I am going after here is I'm trying to find like, what does Jesus mean when he talks about humility? And, uh, you know, I I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have created a book and done all the work I did if I didn't find something that was, I thought like really important (laughs) because, uh, you know, I, for me, like, it's not just about humility. It's it's really about uh, our view of ourselves and our view of others, and and what Jesus teaches. And and the book focuses on Matthew twenty three, but what he finds, I think, is is radically different than what a lot of churches talk about. Because when churches talk about humility, they tend to say, "Well, humility is the opposite of pride," mm. and and that seems to make good sense because you know if you try to think of somebody who's both humble and arrogant it's just it doesn't work right. and and so this idea that humility is the opposite of arrogance well that's very intuitive the problem with that though is that if 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 humility is the opposite of pride and if pride is pro self and blustery and big um then if humility is the opposite of that, that that means humility means to be small and anti-self and whatever, whatever pride is, humility has to be the opposite. And so that understanding of humility really creates a downward pressure in one's spiritual walk, because now the goal is to think of oneself as little and as small as possible. And, um, and, and that's just, I think, destructive. Now, if you ask a psychologist, Hey, what's the opposite of pride? Nobody is going to say humility. (laughs) they're going to say the opposite of pride is shame. Mm. 
And and so it's no coincidence then that a lot of these churches that teach humility is the opposite of pride, they end up with all sorts of shame dysfunction mm-hmm. because that's exactly what they're encouraging people to experience, the shame, right. a feeling of smallness, a feeling of inferiority and all that kind of stuff. And and that has profound uh, consequences in a person's life um, because what I found in, in my, uh, hist- my history in, in doing psychology, I've been, I've been in mental health for 20 years, and um, what I found in my research is that both shame and pride are, are extremely powerful dysfunction steroids. Mm. They make all of our dysfunctions uh, more, they make our depression darker, they make our, our anxiety worse, they make our addiction stickier. I mean, they're just like, they amplify all of our, our mental struggles. And and so what Jesus teaches, I believe, is that humility is the opposite of both shame and pride. Mm. Um uh, in fact, what I argue is that shame and pride, even though they seem like opposite things, they're really actually the same thing. Mm-hmm. And and I talk about that in the book. And humility is opposed to that thing that creates both shame yeah. and pride. Yeah, I, I I really appreciate that and have have had in a less developed sense some of those thoughts before that. You know, if you've been around people who are self-loathing and just woe is me, like those people, they are just as self-absorbed as someone who is, look at how great I am. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Um, And so it's kind of opposite ends of of the same coin that the the same thing is going on, that the, the focus is inward and and on yourself. There, there, there's a couple of things that happens when, when the church really emphasizes this smallness yeah. of self, there's a couple of things that happen uh, with within culture. There's a tendency to see the destruction that the shame can cause and the smallness can cause and try to go as far away from that as possible. And that's where people are drawn to the self-esteem movement and the right, positive right. thinking movement, because whatever they're doing at that church, I need to get as far away right. from that as possible. I'm going the opposite direction and that and like you said that ends up kind of being just a different variation of the same thing um and and so there's that approach then there's those who want to remain in the faith and want to somehow hold on to this understanding of humility and what they'll say is that well no humility is not thinking small of yourself it's thinking of yourself less and and that's a very tempting thing because that and I think it's an improvement. <laughs> right. That is a yeah. big improvement over thinking small of yourself. But the problem is, is that you know we're called to be disciples and we're called to uh, you know learn the teachings that Jesus gave us and we're called to flee from evil and we're called to bear with one another and all of these types of things. And those all take self focus and we need to. Those are skills that we need to learn. And and so I don't think the answer is to not think about yourself either, um, even though that's a big improvement over thinking small of yourself. Um, and so what I propose is that that humility, uh, it's just a different way of, of viewing the entire, um, the entire thing. Um, now, fascinating stuff. And uh, I am, I'm excited to dig into the book. Um, as I told you, it's on my list to read. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, thanks for that, that teaser. I'm, I'm definitely interested uh, for those who are listening and they want to dig in a little bit more. Is there a better place uh, than others to purchase the book or wherever they can get it? Yeah, it's um, it's available on IndieBound. It's available on barnesandnoble.com and Amazon. Um, if you uh, take me out to coffee, I'll buy you okay. one. So 
I, I've, I've got a stack. So if you're in Minnesota, all right. um, for, uh, you know, I, I, I can, I can sell them to you. All right. If anyone <laughs> is uh, in Minnesota, they can take Dan out to coffee and they get a book with it. So, Hey, you know what I just found out too, is if you buy the book, the right. physical book um, on Amazon, you can then get the Kindle for like okay. two bucks or three bucks. One of the main reasons why I asked you to come on was to talk about this idea of open theism. And uh, my my interaction with it is very minimal. Um, the, the first time it was brought to my attention was after I had read the book uh, by Greg Boyd, Myth of a Christian Nation, which is not about... <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> uh, it's out there, people. The, the book is not about open theism at all, but uh, I, I posted that I had read it uh, and kind of gave this this vague caveat for no real reason that uh, just because I, I knew some people uh, did not think kindly of Greg Boyd. So I, I said, I didn't agree or I don't agree with everything that Greg Boyd says, but I really like this book. And I knew I couldn't tell you anything that I disagreed with with Greg Boyd about. I just thought I was being wise in saying that. Um, but someone responded and said, well, I sure hope not. He's an open theist. And I, that was the first time I had heard those two words paired together. Uh, I didn't know what it meant. Uh, clearly this person who was commenting thought that it was something I should be wary of, if not just avoid at all costs. Um, so for those who, uh, were like me, uh, and, don't know what open theism is, or maybe just have interacted with it uh, very uh, surface level. What is open theism? Yeah, it's um, basically open theism is a view about the nature of the future. And um, unfortunately, the, the word open theism, it, I don't like, you know, Greg and I, neither one of us like yeah. the name open theism because it, it implies that all other theisms are somehow closed minded right, right. or something like that. And that's not the case. Um, we don't think that at all. It's just the nature of the future is open right. versus closed, not about God or about our thinking or anything like that. But basically what open theism says is that when, if God gives, when God gives us things, there are implications for that. Um, if he gives us something and he's actually really given it to us, then it's really ours. Um, if it's not ours, then he hasn't really given it. And, um, and so if he gives us free will, that means that we really have a choice, which means that I could do multiple things. Um, which also means that there are some things that don't exist yet because I haven't chosen them. And so what open theism says is that there are things in the future that don't exist yet. Uh, basically things that haven't right. been chosen yet. Um, no, there's a lot of stuff that does exist. There are, there, are, you know, in fact, what Greg and I, we both lean heavily on most things are, are okay. already determined. Um, there, you know, most things have already been decided and either by God or by, uh, just the nature of, of, you know, all of the complex variables that are currently in play. Um, but so what open theism says is that, there are some things in the future that don't exist yet. And so therefore God knows them as possibilities, hmm. not as certainties. There's an openness there. And, and ultimately what this comes back to is, um, it, it, so, so it, it comes back to unholiness basically. And, and the way I frame it is this, no matter if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian or an open theist, um, we all agree that God is holy and good. And he has this profound transcendent goodness that's, 
that's perfect. He's perfectly good. But we also all agree that the world is full of wickedness and unholiness and things that are nothing like perfect goodness. And so the question is, is where do those things come from? And if you, if you, if you say that God controls everything, well, then that ultimately has to come back to God. And, uh, and so open theists want to say, well, no, it can't because God is perfectly good. And so it has to come from someplace else. And open theism is the only perspective that allows for God to maintain his perfect goodness. In Revelation, when the, when the angels are singing about God, that's what they're singing. They're singing, holy, holy, holy. They're not singing sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. They're singing, this God is good. Even though the world is so wicked, it's not because of God. It's because he gave us this potential and we actualized this terrible potential. Um, And open theism is the only perspective that allows for that. Um, That's what we maintain anyway. That already has dispelled some of the the questions or uh, maybe the the ideas or the notions that I had about open theism that, uh, you, you know, you're saying uh, you would hold that most things or many things are determined uh, by God, but that Absolutely. there are some things that are open. A follow-up question there uh, would be like, how do we know which things those are and aren't? Is it kind of just our choices are open, yeah. um, but like ultimate uh, endings and uh destinations are determined or yeah i think um one simplistic way of saying it would be that we have enough freedom to make us morally responsible but there's enough controlled and determined for god to remain sovereign and um and that sounds kind of like a cop-out but it's that's just ultimately that's what has to be because there's a lot of times when i think i'm choosing freely when i'm not and um and so the, we have to respect the fact that, man, a lot of us are already conditioned by our habits, by our culture, by our DNA, and there's so many things there that that um, that that kind of domineer our decisions that we we're not even aware of. Uh, but the fact that we are responsible, and the Bible teaches that we are responsible, suggests that there has to be some freedom there. In fact, you know, talking about humility is 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 a good example of this. We have to be able to choose humility, otherwise, it's not humility. Uh, you know, because if if God were to make us humble, that's not humility. That's right. humiliation. When someone else does the humility to us. That's not humility anymore. It's humiliation. And the fact that Jesus says in Matthew 23 to humble yourselves is sort of like this declaration from God incarnate that you have the capacity to do this and you you are free to do this. Not everybody does. And he says, you know, if you don't humble yourselves, well, then you'll be humiliated. That is, you will be humbled. But I am imploring you yeah. to do it for yourself, which means that we have that choice. And um, and so however we're determined by our DNA and our culture and our habits, there appears to be this potential for us to still right. make choices. Yeah, you, you said that we have enough freedom to be morally responsible, but uh, God still has enough power or control to be in charge. I don't know if that's exactly what you said, but, um, and then you said that Mm -hmm. may sound like a cop-out and I certainly see how people who disagree with you could say that's a cop-out, but to me, it just sounds like you're embracing tension, which I think there's tension in, you know, if you're an Arminian, if you're a Calvinist, like you are embracing some sort of tension anyway. 
Um, and I think right. that there's tension in the scripture because I've, so I grew up uh, in the Methodist church. So an Arminian background, uh, and then in high school and in college went to more uh, reformed or Calvinist leaning schools. Um, and so kind of got both ends of it. Uh, and so have gone back and forth and really have wrestled with that tension myself, uh, which is probably why I haven't done enough research to like embrace it, but why open theism appeals to me because uh, I have wrestled with that tension. And when people ask me about free will or um, whatever, where I've landed for now is that, as you just said, scripture teaches us, teaches that we are responsible for our actions. Um, it also, God is called sovereign, but we also experience free will. So uh, we at mm-hmm. least have that experience of free will. Like I, I don't know that I've ever done something and been like, oh my gosh, like that was an out of body experience. How did that happen? Um, so like I have this experience of free will. So that I know <laughs> how it all works. I can't give an answer to like, I'm just going to trust mm-hmm. that I'm responsible for my actions. It feels like I'm making my choices, but I also believe that God is sovereign. And so what to do with that? I'm not sure other than yeah. to leave it in God's hands. Well, I think, uh, you know, in terms of the tensions, um, I think that you know, if there's going to be tension, and there's just so many things in the Bible that suggest that God is not in meticulous control of of every little thing, um, whereas the ultimate conclusion of the Bible uh, right. is that God is good, and and so if there's going to be like doubt about something, let's not make it about God's. Mm. Yeah. holiness and goodness. <laughs> I would rather have doubts around right. what God controls. Um, but the other thing to say about that is, um, you know, it, what what exactly does it mean to be sovereign and to be in control? Um, and, it, you know, an open theist would say, it's like, well, as long as God gets what he ultimately wants, um, then that's sovereignty. Uh, he doesn't have to he, that doesn't have to happen in a certain meticulous way. It's as long as he gets the outcome. So the example I always use is if you imagine a, um, have you ever watched TV and there's those fishing yeah. shows on like Saturday mornings, there'll be these fishing shows. And, and if you just imagine like the, the greatest fisher, right. the fisherman ever, you know, he's got his own fishing show, branded baseball caps, the whole thing, yeah. you know, he's got his own lures and, um, and he, the guy, every time he goes out fishing, he catches a big fish and just people love watching him fish. And, and he's getting so popular that, uh, he's, he hasn't spent any time with his family. And so he's out on a shoot and there's his daughter on the beach and she's depressed and she misses her daddy. And, and all of a sudden she, he just says, you know what? forget this. Let's just take the day off. I want to go fishing with my daughter. And so he and the daughter get in the boat and they go out on the lake because now I can finally just spend some time with my daughter. And, and she's so excited. She's like, Oh man, I get to go fishing with dad and there's no cameras. It's just me and him. And, uh, and so dad says, well, you know, let's go fishing. And she says, well, where are we going? And he says, well, where do you want to go? And so she points over by this big pipe, which is a big sewage pipe. And dad knows there's no fish over there because the sewage pipe is there, but that's where she wants to go. So they go over there and sure enough, they don't catch any fish. And then, uh, she gets bored with that and she's like, let's go somewhere else. And he says, where do you want to go? And she says, well, how about over there? And, And she does this all afternoon points to these places that there's just no fish. And sure enough, the whole day they 
they, they're out there. They don't catch any fish and they get back to shore and the camera crew is there and they're just like stunned that he went out there and he didn't catch any fish. And, uh, and he says, well, that's because we went here, here and here. And they're like, well, why did you go there? And he says, well, that's because that's where my daughter wanted to go. And, and this is an example of, of, of sovereignty where his goal was to spend time with his daughter where that happens. Hmm. She can choose all sorts of things, even foolish things. It's foolish to try to fish by the sewage pipe, but that's where she wants to go. God is still sovereign because what he wanted is to spend time with us. Where that is and how that looks, that's hmm. up to us. We could do whatever. Um, and so that's kind of what sovereignty looks like in, in uh, uh, open theism, is, is God has these more abstract goals that he is going to accomplish, uh, but the meticulous way that that looks is still open. That's a a helpful analogy. As I think of, or as I thought about open theism uh, and some some of the Bible verses that, with what I knew about open theism, uh, some of the passages or or stories in Scripture that would challenge me. um, I so I sent them to you. I'm I'm starting to grasp a little bit better, I I think, uh, little by little. You spent 20 years on this. I'm not going to pretend like I get it all right now, Uh, but I I can start to anticipate some answers. Uh, I'm sure you'll surprise me anyway. Uh, But let's start in Acts, um, Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter four, we we have uh, Peter and John who have uh, been preaching about Jesus. They've been arrested. They're told... um, to stop. And they say, we can't. And then uh, they're in prison, then they're let free and they show up uh, with the rest of the disciples and uh, they pray this prayer. So this is Acts 4, 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to, to take place. The the disciples saying, one, well, we have that word sovereign again, but you've, you've talked about that. And then mm-hmm. at the end, they say that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they were only able to do what your hand allowed, but what your plan had predestined to take place. So uh, in, yeah. in the, I guess the life, but especially here, the death of Jesus is what we're talking about. What, what is free choice there and what isn't? Um, well, yeah, I, I, this, this is a, an interesting passage. It, it's funny, like uh, there are certain passages that that are like hot um, passages that are used against open theism, and this one not as often. So it, I was surprised uh, about this one um, because I, I think what happens is when you get conditioned to think that God controls everything, it, it's so easy to read right. that into some of these passages as if Herod and Pontius Pilate were part right. of the predetermined plan. Um, but just looking at the grammar of the the sentences, um, I okay. think shows something else because uh, it says in verse twenty eight, they did. So these two people did the thing that your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So they didn't. 
them doing it was not the thing that right, was decided right, right. beforehand, but this thing that they did was decided beforehand. So I think what this passage says is it's the crucifixion that was decided beforehand mm. that would happen. Yeah. And these bozos are the <laughs> ones who actually yeah. did it. Uh, and, and, and so it's, he, they're not saying that Herod and Pilate were predestined to do this. It's just that they're the ones who did the thing that was predestined. Otherwise, if you, otherwise the, the, the prayer doesn't make any sense. If, if you, um, it, it would be totally unnecessary for one thing, because the whole point of the prayer is that, look, why do these people do all of these things in vain? Why do they rise up and why do they do these things? It's like, well, if it's because God made them do it because of his power and will, well, then there'd be no reason to pray the prayer. It's like, duh, right. <laughs> they did it because God's will and power forced them to do it. Uh, but that's not the case uh, because what the thing that's predestined here is the fact that there's a crucifixion. Mm. And and the the uh, the prayer shows us that l- look at the things that people do that are so wicked and evil. Why do they do that? And then the fact that, that uh, Verse 27, right after the prayer, starts with indeed, or I think in your translation, it starts for truly. It kind of ties Herod and Pontius Pilate to to that prayer, uh, that word, that that clause. And so it's kind of like saying, like, why do these people do these wicked things? Like, take Pontius Pilate and Herod, for instance. Why did they do the things that led to Jesus' crucifixion? Even though the crucifixion was pre- destined why did they do it i mean what right, what was it right. about them that that and so that that's what i'd say about that it's um um it, it's not herod and Pilate that were predestined to do these things it's the event that was predestined and herod and Pilate are the 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 two that were kind of being pointed at as the the ones who ended up doing right. it. it if it wasn't them it would have been somebody right. else so and and to step back uh, from that specific passage and just uh, open theism in as a as a concept or an understanding of God, what we're seeing and to tie it into what you said earlier is that God has these uh, some of these ultimate things determined the crucifixion of Jesus, but uh, mm-hmm. through God's sovereignty, through uh, His power, our free choices lead to these determined outcomes? Well, I think, I think I would say it a little different. How I would say it is this, God understands the nature of the world so profoundly, I mean, omnisciently, he knows everything that there is to know. And given what he knows about, about the human situation and, and what he knows about Satan and what he knows about how the world is unfolding, he can know that putting somebody with the teachings of Jesus in that mix is going to get Jesus killed. Mm. And, uh, and, and so it's not like even the predestination isn't that I want my son to be crucified. It's more a matter of, I know that my son will be crucified if I put him into this right. mix. I mean, that's, so it's predestined in the sense that, yeah, this is going to happen and I'm going to use it for good, but this is going right. to happen. And, um, and, and so that's how I would gotcha. understand it in yeah. my own. Open and, and then we even see that in in Jesus's life and ministry, where he's telling the disciples, you know, the the Son of Man must suffer, and there are times where he won't do things that he does later because now's not the time, or you know, he knows. That's and right. even uh, I think of the one scene, and I, I forget where in the Gospels it's found, but where the crowds are are ready to kill him, and he just kind of, he vanishes from the midst of the crowd because it wasn't his time. Um, and so there you see the wisdom of God that these things will lead to this end. I will use that end for good. Yep. But so we'll, we'll turn a few pages to, uh, to Romans chapter eight. 
And this was the the first passage really that came to my mind. And mm-hmm. and we have Romans eight twenty eight, which a lot of people know, but it's more the verses after that that I guess uh, I'll ask you to to clarify. So uh, Romans eight twenty eight through thirty. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we have kind of these these buzzwords, uh, I guess, especially when mm-hmm. we're talking about open theism, for new, predestined. Um, so, wh- yeah, what's going on here? Yeah, I, this, it's, it's, I like that you say buzzwords because um, they're the, you know, Calvinist and Reformed traditions have sort of done a really great job of, of branding those words for their right. theology. And so we assume that what that means before we even read the text, because they've done such a good job of of uh, creating a narrative around those words, um, I, I think that uh, this passage um, there's a lot to say. I'll just say a couple okay. things. Um, uh, the first thing is, um, first of all, the fact that God works for mm-hmm. the good. It, it starts yeah. off God works for the good. Well, uh, that should be a red flag for a Calvinist reading on this, because if everything is just predetermined according to God's will, well, what work is he doing? <laughs> right, what is right. he fighting against? What is what, that? There's no work and in I that at all. That. I would have read it like that before, but even just based on the conversation we've had today, when I read it this time, I, I like that jumped out to me that if, yeah. if everything's predestined, then why is God working things to our good right aren't they predestined for our good that's right it's only when god has actually given other people say so to contend against god now god has to do some work because there are these other agents who can rebel and reject him and so now he has to work against them in order to accomplish his his goal if everything's predestined there's no work at all um and then the second thing is um you know there's the fact that there are some that God foreknew implies that there are some who God did not foreknow. And so that's kind of a right. weird thing for those whom God foreknew. Well, what about those who he didn't foreknow? Huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't there another kind? I mean, it, it, you know, so right away that suggests that, that uh, there are some who are not foreknown. And, and really what that kind of reveals is that th- this, this group that God foreknows is, it is a group. It's, it's, a uh, um, it's, um, a class. It's a corporate whole that God foreknew. I know that there will be a group of people who respond to Jesus in the way that I want them to respond. Who those people are individually, I don't know. But I know that there will be this group. And and for those, and I know that, and for them, um, I, you know, that that's when he talks about all the things that he right. predestines. Um, and, and so I don't view this passage as like a, a description of, um, like individuals it's it's a description of this group this corporate whole that will respond so i'm gonna Um, go ahead and guess that the that's the same thing that is going on in ephesians chapter one yeah and let me let me say this too before we go to ephesians how do we look at romans eight here because it, from a Calvinist or a Reformed reading, the only way I can view this is this is a description of what it's like to be predestined. You know, this is it's describing for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and that he might be first 
born among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Now, if all of this is just done according to God's will, then what Paul is doing here is just describing what happens. Hey, I hope you're one of these people. If you are, this is what you're going to experience. If you're not, tough nuts. It doesn't work for you. But if you are chosen, then this is what you can expect. And, And, you know, it's possible that that's what Paul is doing here. He's just describing what it's like for those who God is determining will be part of this. Um, I think that he probably didn't need the entire book of Romans uh-huh. to, to say that, because if it's just all according to God, then, you know, so be it. Um, if it's just a description of what can happen, then uh, what's the point of saying all of right. this stuff? Um, whereas from an open theist reading, it's not a description of what can happen. This is a, an opportunity that Paul is saying. He's saying, look, there are people who will respond to God in a positive way. They will respond to Jesus in a positive way. And if you, if you respond to Jesus in a possible, in a positive way, if you become part of this group that God has predestined, then you are going to be the firstborn among you know, many brothers and sisters, you are going to be conformed to his will. You're going to be justified and you're going to be glorified. And the open theist reading of this isn't, this is a description of what happens if you're predestined. The open theist reading is that this is an opportunity that you can choose Mm. to be a part of. And it's an opportunity that God is working to convince you is worth your while. It's worth your investment. Um, and, And in my mind, that's just a better yeah. reading of the text. Uh, if it's just a description, if it's all predestined, then this can only be a description, in which case um, there's nothing else to really say. But if it's an opportunity that that Paul is selling, well, now there's a lot more to say. Tell me more. And Paul does. He goes on yeah. and on about it. Yeah, so. and I, I would venture, not every Calvinist per se, um, but I would venture that many people who would read that systematically uh, as a description even like in preaching it or uh, in practical mm-hmm. ways, like it's, you're going to present it as a choice. So, That's right. uh, so there's a, a cognitive, cognitive dissonance or, uh, or you're purposefully disconnecting your systematic belief from the way you're portraying it or what. Uh, but the, yeah. the open theist reading seems like the only practical way to read it or, or, or the best practical mm-hmm. way to read it, I guess. In my mind, yeah, yeah, in my mind it is, um, you know. So then in, in Ephesians 1, Paul's kind of doing the same thing uh, uh, where yeah. we have, uh, he chose us, he predestined us. Um, so this is Ephesians chapter 1, starting verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in in the beloved. I forgot I had underlined this. Uh then down in verse 13, he says, in him, you also. So it like, it changes from this us to this you. As I read that and underlined that, it seems like Paul, when he's talking about us, we, he's not, he's talking about these groups that you had talked about before. And mm-hmm. it's this group of Jews who were chosen and predestined. And then when he goes to you, he's writing to the Ephesians, he's talking about Gentiles, that God also is inviting Gentiles into this, just like the Jews have been invited. Is that the way that you would read that? Or do you see something else going on? 
I think that's I think that sounds like I would say it. There, there's you know the the a reformed Calvinist reading would say that each individual has been predestined to be in Christ. Um, and so what I would say is that no 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 uh, you know there is going to be a group of people who respond to Christ, but who that is is not predestined. Um, and so he talks about all of these great things that are for those that that were designed for those who were predestined to be in Christ. And, and what I would say is that for those who choose to be in Christ, all of these predestined things is, is predestined for them. Um, but I think verse 13 really shows the choice based nature of this. Uh, it's, it's a contingent uh, predestination. It's like um, when right. you believed you were marked in him with a seal. Uh, so are, are you going to choose to believe? Um, uh, and so, you know, when you heard the message, uh, the gospel of your salvation, then you were included in Christ. And and it's not like you were predestined to be included in Christ. It's, it wasn't until you heard this and then you chose to believe that you were then marked with the seal and now you're part of this predestined group. Um, so, yeah, that's what I would say. Uh, it, is it the individuals? Like, I'm predestined to be in Christ, but not him or her? They're not. Or is it there is a group of people that are that will respond positively. And it's up to you and me to decide whether or not we want to be part of that group. And I think the latter yeah, makes a lot yeah. more sense. Uh, Revelation 13, eight. Yeah. Um, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So, uh, and I think the, the King James version renders it a little bit differently too, that, um, here it's everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. So mm-hmm. it's the names that are written that have happened or not happened before the foundation of the world. I think in the King James, uh, yeah. it says the, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of, of the world. So yeah. either way, we have something happening. Uh, you could say being determined yeah. before uh, the foundation of the world. So you said this was a good one. Yeah. What's going on in this verse? <laughs> well, I, I just yeah. a couple things about it is um, the TNIV also says that it's the Lamb who was slain right. from the foundation of the world, not the names that were written. Uh, so that that's uh, an important thing because, like we've said, is the the crucifixion right. was foreknown and predestined by God and, and so forth. Um, but this book of life, um, it's an interesting. Thing. First of all, this is yeah. a, an apocalyptic. Yeah writing. And, um, and so the question is, what is the role of an apocalyptic writing? Is it to describe what's going to happen? Uh, or is it to warn people mm-hmm. of what could happen? Um, and if it's a description, there's probably some value in that, but there's a lot mm-hmm. more value in a warning because with a warning, now I have a choice I can make. I still have the opportunity to change course. And ultimately I think apocalyptic writing is primarily a warning not a not a like a uh, you're not going to a fortune teller to to hear right. what the future is going to hold uh it's written to give you a warning so that you change your ways and um and so which implies free right. choice right, right in in the nature of it and and you see that even in this book the supposed book of life um because i mean first of all <laughs> why does god need a book to begin with you know it, 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 is, right. is his memory bad he's you know he's good with faces <laughs> but not with names and i want to make sure i get the name you know it's it's obviously right. an image here and uh, but the fact that that 
they're written in, when are they written in? Are they written in before we are born or are they written in once we have chosen to believe? And um, if they're written in before we were born, that makes it really weird when, uh, like in Revelations 3, 5 and in Exodus 32, when um, it says that our names are blotted right. out of this supposed book. It's like, Well, wait a minute. If God foreknew that I was going to be in it, so much so that he wrote me in, well, then how could I be blotted out? Does that mean that his foreknowledge was wrong? Well, no, it doesn't. What it means is that the names are written in not based on God's determined will, but based on what we choose to do. In all of the cases when they talk about the book of life, it's always um, the names are written and erased based on what we do, not based on what God determines. Uh, and, and so I think the book of life is a, is an example of um, the importance of our decisions, uh, not the fact right, that we don't right. have a decision. Yeah. Um, and when you, so dealing with the book of revelation as apocalyptic literature um, and even like prophetic literature and old Testament prophetic literature, when we hear prophecy, our tendency is to think that, we're being told this is what will happen. But even the role of Old Testament prophetic literature is not this is what is going to happen. It's a warning that like this is what God can do. This is what might happen. Like it's always uh the the role of the prophets is to call God's people and sometimes God's enemies to repentance and to avoid the That's punishment. Right. But if you don't, here is the prophecy of what will, ha- like it's a, it, there's a choice involved there. It's not a, this is what's going to happen and you guys are screwed. It's if you don't yeah. turn from your ways, you're screwed because this is what, what God yep. is looking to do. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, in, in support of that, um, you know, I have a TNIV Bible, which I just, I love this, this translation, but it's this dude, this thing, if it falls off the <laughs> shelf, it could kill somebody. Yeah. It's so big, you know? And, and when you think of, of our situation, um, is this book describing what is going to happen according to God's will? Or is this book a tool to help us make the right choices so that we can align ourselves with God? Um, and, and open theism wants to say that, look, we are in this warfare. We're in this spiritual war and there are all sorts of forces that are trying to keep us from God. And God is calling us to him. And it's, it's something that we have say, so we have the the capacity to do that. We have the capacity to find God. Um, but, but there are all sorts of obstacles. And so there's a lot to say. And, and, um, you know, with open theism, there's just a lot to say because God is raising us up to be warriors in this, um, in this world. Now, if everything is just predestined, there's just not that much to say. And, um, and so I, 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 I just, I feel like, uh, uh, just the taking that into my reading, just makes a lot more sense of everything yeah. that I'm that I'm reading. It's been uh, enlightening, fascinating. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to to talk through that with me. Um, for for maybe myself and for some listening uh, who are interested and want to dig in more, uh, what resources would you recommend? Well, I think Greg's book "God of the Possible" um, is a good place to start. Um, he also has a book called "Is God to Blame?" that looks at how uh, this theology helps us mm-hmm. in times of suffering. Because um, if if my child is abducted and killed, 
because that's what God wanted. Um, that makes that makes it really right. hard to praise that God. Um, but open theism says God would never want that. In fact, he despises that. And he is, is all about fighting against the forces that cause that. Um, well, then that's a God I can worship. And, and so Greg goes into really great detail about how that God is, is praiseworthy and not a God who determines and needs to kill kids in order to, uh, an article, um, I should share too. Um, it's called 15 reasons open theism is true. And it's a response to, um, Andrew Wilson, who wrote an article called 15 reasons open theism is false. And I just go through each of those reasons. 